big sky, big potential. This is Eastern Promise. Housing is currently the hottest of hot-button issues once again and in dire need of calm, reasoned and well-evidenced discussion. Thankfully, that has now been provided by the East of England Local Government Association, a membership body which represents the region's 50 councils and who followed up their recent progress report on levelling up in the East of England with a landmark study into the state of the region's housing. The East of England LGA invited Eastern Promise to come to their offices in Bury St Edmunds and hear more about the report, entitled Opening the Door – Good Quality, Available and Affordable Housing in the East of England. Bury St Edmunds, Wednesday. I'm here with gentlemen. Introduce yourself. Hi Mike, Adam Thorpe, Head of Policy and Programmes at the East of England Local Government Association. Uh, and I'm Matthew Stewart, um, Policy and Programmes Manager at the same place. We are here uh, to discuss quite a landmark report that was a response in part to the feedback from the, the levelling up report that you guys put out that's, that got a lot of coverage. The APPG took that to ministers and, and campaigned upon its contents. It's a really authoritative report, uh, incredibly detailed with a, with a really strong body of evidence. And this housing report is very much of the same ilk. Can I just start with Matthew? Of course. And ask you to give me a bit of uh, background as to why the report exists, what you're hoping it to achieve, and then perhaps we'll get into with Adam as well. We'll, we'll come on to sort of the meat of, uh, of what the report says and what we hope will come from it. Matthew. Well, in, in simple terms, the report exists because, um, well, our, our councillors, our members, uh, were, were increasingly interested in the area of housing and planning uh, as areas of policy. They'd raised it with us uh, through our engagement with them. We hold regular panel meetings, we call them, with leaders and uh, portfolio holders across the region. And increasingly, they were talking about housing and planning as something they really wanted to keep an eye on. So we increasingly started researching in this area, started looking more and more at the numbers and the figures. And the more we looked at it, the more complex the area of policy really started to be and look like. It, it is a fantastically complicated area with, with multiple different things feeding into one another and multiple different sort of policy areas that are sort of partially involved in it. If there's a Venn diagram, it's basically just a spider's web. So following on from that, we decided to uh, do a report of that sort of thing. We sort of looked at maybe, maybe this is more than just uh, some internal reporting. Maybe this is more than just sort of taking a look at the statistics ourselves. Maybe we need to push this as a part of a wider package of advocacy on behalf of the East of England and really set out where the East of England is, you know, what we're doing currently, what are sort of set out the scale of the issues that are at play here, set out what the barriers are in, within our region to uh, addressing those issues with regards to housing. And then uh, just a few suggestions as to how we can fix those barriers. How can we approach those barriers? How can we make sure that housing is delivered in our region uh, in, in a much sort of better way? Uh, and so, as the housing report is, hopefully that it, it, it goes some way towards addressing that. So Adam, could you um, perhaps go through for us where the balance stands in the report? We talked about this before we came on. The balance between what we have, the power we have in this region to get inventive, get creative, 
uh, in the the outcomes because you, you you've produced in the report and I uh, particularly in the both the executive summary and the back a really uh, interesting list of recommendations and outcomes uh, that you're seeking we're all should be seeking frankly uh, and I want to get into those and talk about those in more depth in a second but I just want to get a sense from you the balance between what we can do now in our region where the, we have the levers in, in our hands and we can pull them uh, if, if we so desire if we have the will and what is requiring us to lobby our government in, in, in Whitehall? Sure, yeah. So I think there's a certain amount for sure that we can look at um, between our councils internally as a region to increase house building. And you ask if there is the will. Well, there definitely is the will. Councils want to do this. Councils know that there's a massive shortage in housing and it's one of the biggest challenges faced in our region. So the will is certainly there. And councils are working as hard as they possibly can to get more houses built. I think there's something in the region of 236,000 planning permissions out there in 2022 that have not yet been built. So this kind of narrative that persists at times around the planning system being the problem and councils uh, having too much red red tape with their planning application processes isn't really the case. The planning permission is there and the the will is there to, to build more. But there's all sorts of issues affecting councils around their budgets. I think planning department budgets in our region alone shrunk by approximately 20% between 2010 and 2021. So that means councils don't have the resources and the capacity that they really require to push forward the house building at the rate it needs to be created. But there are also issues around land banking of developers holding on to land because of the, the market situation that exists around supply and demand. Um, and the need for them to, to, to keep prices a bit higher. Coming up with something like a local plan mm-hmm. is a tremendously difficult experience, mm-hmm. which you go into in this report. It definitely, it's definitely, it's, it's really, and anyone who, I mean, I remember the joint call strategy, Norwich City Council, South Norfolk Council, Broadland District Council, uh, and you, know, you, you have all these meetings attended by a planning inspector where only the dedicated and those who are employed to be there or elected to be there are there. Yeah. So, you know, you, you're right off starting with the voice of the, uh, the, the, the those who, who need to make the case and those who want to see the whole thing brought to a screeching halt, <laughs> which is, you know, and, and, and we, we enter the kind of the weird where, where you've got the site-specific documents, which are basically a list of where it's available and it's politically acceptable, mm-hmm. not necessarily where the market wants to do anything. Mm-hmm. But stepping down from this magnificent high horse that I appear to have mounted, there is in here, I think, that the beginnings of hope and optimism, which I want to kind of tease out from you. I mean, the, the numbers in you know are stark in terms of where the shortfall is, where the east of England is 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 not in. And <laughs> you're really straining against my 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 uh, no negativity policies. Um, not optimal, I think, is what I'd say. Um, but talk, looking at this case study, you talked about planning budgets. You talked about the demands on planning officers, and you know we you were already seeing the beginnings of, of the, across the region I think, joint services, which is obviously pooling of talent, pooling of resource in planning departments. You bring uh, up an example in the document of the uh, Association of South Essex Local Authorities and Home England. Home England. 
can I invite one of you, Matt, you're pointing at, he's the man, to, to, to lead off and, and tell us more about what that is, how it's working, and, and perhaps how that model uh, can shine a light for the rest of the region. Well, absolutely. I mean, uh, Asala is a really interesting case study. It's a, a combination of local authorities in South Essex. Uh, for, for those uh, listening who uh, don't aren't necessarily familiar with Asala, that is short for the Association of South Essex Local Authorities. You know, they're, they're working together to try and boost housing delivery in their area and see what they can do uh, as local authorities to try and reduce the barriers to those house uh, that home building uh, in a really constructive way. I feel, and this this is a uh, something that operates on quite a high level, but also on a slightly more procedural and um, uh, officer-based level as well, which I think is really, really important. It's good to have both of those levels. You don't necessarily just want the high-level talking. It can, you know, that's incredibly valuable for cooperation purposes, but it can lead sometimes to, you know, sort of uh, things becoming mired in sort of, you know, discussion about nice-to-haves, whereas this, I believe, also has uh, this, the, the potential to really develop some uh, change on the ground, which I think is really, really fantastic to hear. Uh, I attended one of the more recent meetings and they were talking about how to uh, get housing projects unstuck in their area by talking to um, uh, you know, social housing providers, housing associations, uh, and how they could potentially use their expertise as housing developers to bolster what local authorities are doing in their region as well. Because a lot of these the local authorities, we have experience in, in dealing with housing and planning and things like that, but not as much as we perhaps used to in the past. And so having a housing developer on side who shares those sorts of uh, public-minded values is very, very useful to have uh, as, as someone who can offer advice, someone who can offer financial support potentially in some cases where it's possible for them to do so. I mean, obviously housing associations, you know, they've got a bottom line. They do have to you know, look after that at the end of the day. No one's expecting them to do it for free. But it's, it's, um, it's a really interesting approach to really sort of, uh, you know, taking these systems that are, you know, these projects that are completely log jams where no one can move, you know, they're completely stuck and potentially just applying a bit of grease to the wheels and just making things move a little bit smoother. And I think that really can be a bit of a barrier in the system at the moment is sort of things can get seized up quite quickly and then there are delays and then there are longer delays. Whereas, you know, reducing the friction, I think, is very, very valuable. I think a seller, it's a really promising uh, approach to dealing with that. And obviously, as you said before, they're also in conversations with Home England, which is really great to hear. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, yeah, I mean, only Manchester, I believe, has, has that sort of access to home, uh, Homes England in the same way that a seller does. Uh, indeed, at the meeting I was at, a representative of Homes England was there, um, had a wonderful chat with her about the rugby. It was lovely. Um, <laughs> and uh, it was it, so it was, um, it, yeah, it was really, really good to see the, uh, that that agency taking this body seriously, quite rightly, as a way of dealing with the housing problems that are potentially being faced by the region. And I just want to come on briefly because people will be shouting at the uh, at their podcast provider of choice <laughs> if I don't mention nutrient neutrality, yes. which in handily mentioning Norfolk again, uh, there's a, a range of local authorities setting up a venture joint venture with Anglian Water, that's South Norfolk, Norwich, mm. Broadland, Breckland, North Norfolk. Um, could I invite one of you to to kick off and tell me how that's working? Uh, describe the scheme for those who haven't heard of it. And, uh, so, uh, I mean, there's many people, and if you're in the housing world, you're probably aware of this already, but there are, there are um, issues with regards to house building in Norfolk, or at least some, the majority of the 
districts in Norfolk around uh, making sure that pollutants don't end up in the river. Because if these pollutants end up in the river, you end up with uh, algae blooms and you end up with a detriment to wildlife. And it, 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 it's a very worthy goal. You know, we, d we don't want polluted rivers. We want you know, nice and clean, pristine waters for our future, especially with Norfolk, where so much of their tourism yeah. relies on that. But mm -hmm. we, we, you know, that's, that's completely fair. However, it means that in order for any housing to go forward, they need to prove that they will be neutral with regards to these pollutant off-runs. That has caused a massive problem in Norfolk where you know, thousands of homes have had to just been paused because you know, th th there's no clear way for them to go forward because they can't prove that they're going to be neutral uh, neutral neutrality uh, or be able to be neutral. neutral, neutral. Yeah. Yes, a bit of a word mouthful. Um, and so uh, what, what uh, I believe someone from our, our talent bank here at Ilga uh, is, is working with the local authorities there and, and Anglia Water. Uh, they are looking to create a, a really interesting uh, system whereby the local authorities do the uh, neutrality bit preemptively almost, you know, building the wetlands, uh, making sure that the waters are recycled and, and, and in good health. And then what they can do is, ha having front-loaded all of that work, they could then go to local authority, well, no, they can go to planners, sorry, and go, well, we've done this for you, so you don't have to worry about this in your, in your developments. But what we're going to need is just, you know, and you can buy that reassurance from us. If you want to do it yourselves, that's still fine. You know, if you want to make, build your own wetlands, that's absolutely fine by us. But especially for smaller developers that might struggle to do that sort of environmental work, it's really valuable that they can just turn to, you know, the local authority in question, or this body in particular, Norfolk Environmental Credits, they can go to this body and say, can we purchase some credits that say that the, the work has been done, basically. Mm, yeah. And that will hopefully get the house building moving again. And that's, that'll be really important for the people of Norfolk. In terms of training, in terms of getting those planners into local government offices, uh, what Adam uh, is, what role is the talent? Can the talent bank play? What is the outcome you want to see that the the, out, the report is calling for? So, in the short term, our talent bank is a great opportunity for councils who are struggling with capacity to to build a bit of short term capacity in their teams and and help out with specific projects and, and programs regarding planning. So that's kind of a a short-term outcome. We've got all sorts of associates on the talent bank with years and years of experience in planning departments. So that opportunity is there. I think in the longer term, we can look at opportunities around bringing together a, a team of associates with the knowledge on how to run a planning department successfully in terms of recruiting, uh, retaining and training the right colleagues um, for the right teams. Build a team together to look at how this situation could be improved at the regional scale. I think when councils are looking at this issue individually with their own teams, there's bound to be lots of poaching going on. There's bound to be difficulties around capacity, around resources. But I think if our member councils across the east of England work together on the issue, which a number of them are for, for specific geographies, we can achieve much more and we can hopefully start to um, can hopefully start to, to, to build the teams we need in our planning departments. Mm -hmm. But I, I do think there is a support from government needed here. Councils just frankly haven't got the money they need to pay mm -hmm. planners the, the salaries that are going to keep them in their teams and not jump across to the private sector. So there's a whole thing around finances and councils do just need more money from the government to be able to pay, pay planners what, what they require. But I think there is, at the national scale, a strategy, a robust and coherent strategy that's needed from government 
around this crisis in the planning workforce and what can be done to really make it an appealing profession? Well, I was just, I was just actually um, pondering my, uh, on, on the idea that is there something that could be constructed around trainee planners, giving them that experience early doors? I call it an apprenticeship, I, you know, um, but if you're studying to be a planner and, and you know, you, you've got that opportunity to gain that first-hand experience, you've got that energy as well and that enthusiasm that, that a, thousand, a thousand public meetings where you're being shouted at um, haven't quite eroded yet. Um, because, I mean, the, the report does talk about how it's a perception thing for the mm. public as well, that, yeah. you know, your planner, planning officers are not there to dump on you what you don't want. They're there to craft what's needed in the way that suits as many interests as possible. And it's bloody hard. <laughs> it's, Absolutely. I've, I've, you know, I've, I've personally made planners' lives hard, planners' lives more difficult over 15 years. <laughs> and I did took no pleasure in it. It is very, very difficult. If people are poaching from the top, it's a bit like the, the, the bit in the untouchables, you know, if they're poaching the apples from the tree, you know, from the barrel, let's go and get them first from the tree. Mm. So is, is there something that could, could come from that? Yeah, certainly. I think there's all sorts of options that we could look into around different, tra different training programmes. I think you're right that the kind of, the current route in for planners is just far too long, far too onerous, and is really holding people back from entering the profession when they may have, you know, that's kind of a, a, a different route in. So apprenticeships, T-levels, um, you know, more kind of vocational routes into planning, I think would definitely be one option. I do think there's some kind of signs of improvement from government. In recent documents from government around reforming the planning system, there's a lot of talk of bringing the planning system into the 21st century and using technology, using digital solutions in a way that really makes the engagement a lot easier mm. for the communities and residents when getting involved in sort of planning processes. But hopefully, and, and possibly could also make it a more enjoyable situation for, <laughs> for those actually working in the system. You brilliantly have preempted my next uh, thing I wanted to raise with you, which is about community engagement, mm. which the dreaded early evening public meeting mm. where, you know, poor planners go to be harangued um, by angry residents, but certainly in rural areas anyway, um, which is not how it should be. And the kind of technology you're seeing coming on, on stream now in architecture, we're talking about augmented reality, I'm interested to what you think. I mean, this is, this is, this is difficult because you don't want on the one hand to be reliant on industry because, look, I haven't got the budget, you know, to buy loads of AR headsets. <laughs> But on this, by the same token, you don't want to say, oh, you're just doing that because, you know, they, they've paid for it anyway. Uh, but for someone to say, look, put these on, look at the field, and you'll have an idea of what it will look like. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's not so bad. It's also, and I'll, I'll come to Matt and then, then, then to you, Adam, it's about, is it about getting over to people. Yes, you love where you live, but people are living longer. Housing stock is not changing hands at the rate it once did. And, you know, if you want to continue to have a pub and a nice village shop, if you've got those things, and a village hall that doesn't, you know, die on its ass because no one's using it. And, you know, if you want to have a, a bus that stops in your village, I'm sorry, but there's only one answer. And it's how, Matt, do you think we can get that across in a way <clears throat> that, that is both compassionate, empathic, 
but also effective. Well, ab absolutely. I think I think that really is sort of cuts the heart of the matter of trying to get the, that that community consent for these sorts of things. I mean, as you were saying earlier, it's very easy to to uh, get get angry at the poor planning officers. Uh, I, I, I've made it a mission to to go buy them some brownies or something at the next <laughs> next one of these evening meetings we find. Your luck's in, planners. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I owe you all collectively some brownies. Um, anyway, but so I mean, anything that could could help with that public perception, I think, would be really really. Useful. In fact, uh, in the uh, latest consultation from the National Planning Policy Framework, I won't get too into the weeds, I promise you, but one of the things that was raised was about uh, that developers need to be able to provide more detailed drawings uh, and, and examples of what the buildings are going to look like once they're done, like you know, examples of the kind of material they're going to be using, much more accurate drawings, that sort of thing. So I think that perception point is a really important one. And if, if alternate, uh, you know, alter, alternate reality, virtual reality, can be used to give that example, then you know, the, all, all more power to them if they can use that to persuade the public, then that's absolutely fine. I, mean, I, guess, I guess there's a question about uh, how available that technology is for smaller housing developers versus larger housing mm -hmm. developers. Um, but at, at the same time, I think, you know, I think there is something to be said about the exposure point. But it is incredibly important to get this point across. And I think if, if for no other reason, I think it's really, really important to note that, you know, the key workers that you know, services rely on, they need somewhere to, to, to live, uh, you know, ultimately. You know, teachers, nurses, mm -hmm. doctors, these, these souls require somewhere to live. And it's not even necessarily even necessarily about house prices, especially in more rural areas. It is just simply where, where are they going to live? Are they going to have to bus in from the, the next market town along? That sort of thing. And I think we can all agree with all, you know, we, we like the idea of our, our local doctor. I love my local doctor. Uh, I mean, I live in central Ipswich, but, you know, I really, you know, I like being able to walk down the road and he's, you know, he's there. Um, and that, that's, that's a really valuable thing that people, I think, really appreciate. And so saying to them, you know, oh, this is, you know, this is how we facilitate that. By building these houses, we are enabling the next, you know, new people to come in. We are enabling these key workers to settle down. We're helping to boost the local economy so that more public services can be provided, better public services can be mm. provided. And I do appreciate where some of the reluctance comes from. I have a few friends of mine who live, I, I won't name where, I don't want to, don't want to get into <laughs> yeah. No names, no packing. Will not be named, but um, they will, so they, they, they were, they were, they were talk, complaining about a, a housing development near where they lived. And they said, I've got nothing necessarily wrong about the houses going up, like, that, that's fine, more the merrier, but you know, I'm already struggling to get a, you know, an appointment with a GP. I'm already you know, struggling, the roads are gridlocked uh, at rush hour already and they're planning on putting a few thousand more homes in. And, and so I, I can see where those concerns come from. Um, and why I'm, I'm sort of glad to see that the, some of the new infrastructure levy stuff that, that's coming out, you know, it, it's talking about governments being able to borrow against predicted future funds to enable them to build that infrastructure. Um, I mean, and we can have a discussion about whether you know, more needs to be done. But I, I think that that is an important part of the puzzle. It's, it's not just saying that it will be beautiful, which I think is you know, that would, that would be desirable. I'd, I'd love, you know, look at it and say, oh, this doesn't look so bad. I think absolutely, it's got to be a part of it. No one wants ugly homes. Uh, although I'm, I'm a fan of brutalism very secretly. So <laughs> I know no one here will share my tastes, but I love a bit of concrete me. Um, but that's, that's, that's just me. I appreciate it. most people have very different tastes and that's absolutely fine. But I think- Well, it is, yeah. uh, again, that you raised the point that beauty being in the eye of the beholder. And mm. this is again, I, I do like harking back to my experience. Um, been in public meetings where the local community are not ill disposed, but concerned, which is probably uh, these days the optimum you can hope for. 
and the map gets rolled out of what's proposed and the developer and representative goes, oh, those ones are affordable, mm. but they're near, they're near us. I've got to go somewhere. And there's that kind of concern that surrounds where affordable housing goes. But as the report makes absolutely clear, that need is, is desperate and growing. I was lucky when I was, I, I was still in the days of 100% mortgages. Uh, I, I got in just at the right time. Lucky me. But lots of people are not lucky. And so they need access to affordable rents and affordable housing. How do we, Adam, do you think, can Ilga help perhaps, can thread that needle uh, in terms of we've got to build them, they've got to go somewhere, but they are often the most greeted with the most apprehension because there's a, a, a kind of a preconceived idea of the kind of people who are going to go in there, which I think is, is a very old hat and, 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 and tired stereotype. Over to you. Yeah, I think you're right that that general perception does exist in, in kind of some communities and some places around around affordable housing and then, you know, the sorts of people that that might bring. So it's our job as a membership body and to support our members, i.e. the councils of the East of England, to better communicate that with their residents, that uh, to, to create that myth, to carry out that myth busting mm. so that that mm. perception mm. Is, isn't the case as much as possible. I think, you know, there's some people whose minds you'll never change, but I think our councils have strong communications departments and they have the yes. ability to, mm-hmm. to have that dialogue, that conversation with their residents to ensure that those positive messages about affordable housing, about the, about the communities that, that, will be, that will be brought into the area and the positives that that will bring to the, to the local area mm-hmm. and the local community is really strong. I think, you know, whatever way you look at it, we've got a desperate need for genuinely affordable housing. House prices are currently 10.5 times the average salary in the east of England. That's jumped, that's twice what they were 20 years ago. So we've got a huge affordability crisis in our region and we do just need vast, vast amounts more of generally affordable housing. I think there's lots of factors that that are in play here and I think you know it's a national issue but it is yeah, we, we can't and we can't control you guys yeah, can't control yeah. many of them the councils that you represent can't control many of them <laughs> yeah. you know for, for example the, the fact that so many people are dependent on return on the investment they've made in bricks and mortar mm. uh, you know for, for whatever reason um, but do, do you just want to unpack a bit um, the infrastructure aspect of of the report, uh, I invite one of you to 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 lead off on that. Uh, well, so with the infrastructure uh, element of the report, so well, I suppose um, sort of talked a little bit about it already. But with, when it comes to infrastructure and house building, it can be quite tricky because there is a bit of a chicken and egg thing going on. That is always the case, yeah. isn't it, with this thing? You know, that blessed chicken. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, you know, will one of you just get on with it, please? Yeah, absolutely. Why won't one of them just lay a golden egg already? But the, uh, it's, it's, so it's, it's very, very tricky because obviously, you know, the, the public funding required to make good infrastructure comes, comes often after the properties are there yeah. and the council tax is coming in, the tax take is there, so on and so forth. But uh, really, you need the infrastructure there to make the houses worth building and living in in the first place, and let alone for the benefit of the houses that were already there in the first instance, who obviously, as I've said before, understandably a bit uh, suspect about you know, having to share what they perceive as already quite stretched uh, public services with, with potentially more people. It's a tricky one to answer, 
uh, and and it's 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 not not a problem that we take particularly lightly. We know that the um, you know the government is proposing uh, various me uh, measures going forward on this, uh, including uh, the infrastructure levy that's potentially coming in. That has its pros and its cons. We're currently talking. There's a consultation out at the moment, actually, um, and we're we're talking to some of our local authorities about that as a, a particular policy. Some of the pros do seem quite interesting. The ability to borrow against future revenue coming in so you can build the bridges that you need so that you can build the infrastructure that you need you know the, the, the internet connectivity incredibly important in the east of england given how rural we are you need that in the ground from day one that that's really really valuable um but uh i mean the downsides potentially though some local authorities are a little bit worried that it's going to put off affordable homes it's <laughs> it seems like there's there's almost no give in the system at the moment that doing doing something in one area potentially uh, you know it's robbing people to pay pool sometimes mm. uh, when when it comes to house building but i mean that that infrastructure point is is quite important it's 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 uh, i think it's worth worth repeating you know that yeah these 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 if, if we want these neighborhoods to be efficient and effective and desirable that infrastructure needs to be there mm. absolutely um community-led housing as well as well as we'll ask you to talk about community-led housing before we come on to things like developer build out empty dwellings and um homeless accommodation sheltered accommodation uh and emergency accommodation because there's been some very interesting work going on there but talking of interesting work uh, Norwich City Council, as many listeners will know, have had a passive house scheme, social housing in the middle of the city, which has won all sorts of awards, feted in the national press. And although some critics sort of say, it's, well, it wasn't very economically viable, was it? It's, it's a, a great example of a council doing the right thing because it's the right thing. And you've got houses that cost nothing to eat. Uh, I've done it again. <laughs> Second time I've done that. And nothing to heat. Mm. Cost nothing to heat. And um, it's, it's, it's really a remarkable example of, of as a determination and will from a local authority, from one of your member councils. And there may be other examples that I'd love to, to, to visit across the region. Mm. But tell me about uh, community-led housing and, and, and how that can be. We've got things like community land trusts. I know in, uh, particularly in Cambridgeshire, or Swaffham Prior Community Land Trust is one I know. Uh, tell me, Adam, about community-led housing. So I think community-led housing is a really good opportunity for communities to, to really get, in, get, a, get involved in house building right on the ground and experience the, the whole process from start to finish. And as a result of that, be much kind of more bought into the, this yeah. new housing that, that, that kind of crops up in, in their local community, whereas they might not have been if it was a normal developer-led um, scheme. It's not going to provide us with the kind of the scale of housing increase that we're after, but I don't think it, it that's a problem necessarily. It's it's really about getting community communities to plan for and build the houses that that they know is re are required in their local areas. There's an organisation called Eastern Community Homes, which is right. a, a collective of lots of planning officers and people in the industry, both from local government but also private sector involved in community-led housing that brings the, the discipline together for the region, shares best practice, seeks uh, funding from central government to really push forward community-led housing mm. as far and wide as possible um, for the region. So that's a, a great organisation to look out for. Letchworth, 10-year blind since 1911. Mm. 
But in terms of, to go back to what I was, and I, I think that's just an important point, and, and let's have a model that perhaps we could, you know, one of the things I may, may have to do on the show is go and look and, and, and ask people, is this a model, the Garden Village model, where they've got those, they're providing a lot of the services that we want to see? Mm. Um, or, or is that a model because it's so baked in, mm. it can't be repeated? But that's, that's not why we're here. Breckland Council, Elm House, recently visited by Princess Royal, who I believe opened it, and, and you know, uh, an award-winning building that's been brought back into use mm. from a derelict, an old, a former derelict school as emergency accommodation. Mm. As I say, if there are any other examples of schemes like that you know of, I'd love for you to, to, to mention them. But how can you encourage, as Ilga, your more schemes to come like that for your members? Uh, you know, your convening power to spread best practice, I'm thinking of in particular. Mm. Do you want to take that? Adam, you're, you're, you're indicating you'll take that one. Yes, yeah, so I think that's really core to our role as an organisation is to bring our member authorities together to really share best practice, but also discuss the shared challenges they have. Yes, that's so important. But when you hear of things that you weren't aware of at all, you hear of the art of the impossible and you hear of how colleagues in other councils have managed to get something off the ground. I think it all of a sudden becomes a lot more simple and a lot easier to address as yourself as a council. So I think we certainly have a role to play and we, we bring councils together all the time, as you'd imagine, to talk about all sorts of different issues across the whole of, of local government. I think for this area specifically, that's something we, we could be doing more and something we'd definitely be happy to explore. Yeah, because it's, it's a very difficult area for the reasons we've kind of even more so than the reasons we've already at least around just general planning um because of the nature of the people who are going in it we're talking you know refugees we're talking ex-offenders but the, the point being to get these people to a point where they are useful productive members of society with a future to contribute to put back into the public purse it's got to happen. It's got to happen, as, as uncomfortable as that might be for some. Um, but as I say, Breckland have actually grasped the nettle. And again, if you're listening and you know of another example, Mike at easternpromise.site, I'd love to hear of it. Um, and you, you talk about your, your, your role as best practice, and, and this is going to sound a little corny, but do you also provide that safe space to discuss those challenges? Because, and the reason I mention safe space is, thinking back to Ford... And the example of Alan Mullally, who came from, across from, I believe, Boeing. Mm. This is this is way back, but he was there were that lot. I think they were launching a car in Canada, yeah. and he was getting his people together to look at it. And all the all the all the lights were green, all the the rag ratings were green. Yet everything was falling apart. So he had to sort of get his guys together and say, "Look, this is a safe space. No one's gonna get the high jump for this." We need to talk about it and come on, it's safe. And after a long, painful silence, somebody suddenly went, oh, this is what's, <laughs> this is the problem. And then someone on the other side of the room went, oh yeah, I've seen that. This is how we fixed it. So is it really, you know, when you're coming to issues like this, coming to the issues in the housing report, we've got these pockets of best practice in Cambridgeshire, in Essex, Hertfordshire, Bedfordshire, Norfolk, Suffolk. Is it your remit to provide that safe space to say, it's okay, guys, you can talk about this here? It really, really is, yeah. I think that's something that's almost a unique offer for our organisation, actually. Yeah. With, yeah. Since around 
2021, we've been running a series of roundtable conversations and they're open to officers and members of, of all of our councils in the East of England, but also wider partners in organisations that may have an interest in whatever subject it is we're covering at that round table. But we've had really good feedback from those sessions. They've been really well attended by officers of councils and members. But I think the thing that people have found most beneficial about it is that safe space and is that yeah, Chatham House kind of Chatham House yeah. rules the place to have an informal conversation between members and officers, which doesn't happen very often at all. I think when people are in their own councils, there's much more of a kind of a formal governance type relationship yeah. between officers and members. And you have to obviously the 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 political tension. I mean, I, I raised this with Greg Peck, who is the cabinet or you know is the cabinet member for estates at Norfolk County Council. Mm -hmm about that when you're trying to do the best you can and everyone you know let's be honest everyone in their own way who is in a, a local authority is no matter what party no matter whether you're an officer is trying to do the best for their community absolutely, and you've got that tension between i mean we saw this on, on the national stage with um when in 2010 when the conservative government the, the coalition beg your pardon came in and there's a tradition there's a tradition of which I suspect has come to a screeching halt of an outgoing minister leaving a note for his successor. Oh yeah. And in this case it was Liam Byrne saying, sorry, no money left. And <laughs> a, a political opportunity was sent was sensed yeah. and taken. And I think that probably has, is gonna have a deleterious effect, because ain't nobody ever gonna do that again. No. Um uh in handing, you know, that what they thought was a safe space between colleagues. I mean, there's a, there's a famous example, so famous I can't remember who said it, I think it was Reginald Morley, sorry for leaving such a mess, old cog, um, <laughs> as he walked out the door. Um, but, you know, that, 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 I, I hope that hasn't gone, but that is so important to be able to reach across those political lines, mm. to reach across that and say, this is for the good of the community and you've got to have that safe space to talk about these things, to share these ideas and best practice and challenges mm. and say, yes, we've seen that in our authority. Yeah. Mm. And this is what we did. And if it works for you, mm -hmm. absolutely, best, you know, take it. Yeah, I think yeah. Ilga's a great convener. It is, you really are, you of, really are. Of our councils, but also the wider partners that exist in, in that space. The COVID-19 pandemic is, is where I think we really honed our skills and our, our place as an organisation in that area. Bringing together partners was crucially important. Everyone had to work together to, to, you know, to face these, these huge challenges we were facing at that time. But thankfully, we've carried that forward into yeah. all sorts of issues that we've faced since the COVID-19 pandemic, which obviously isn't over yet. And we're really able to provide a space where we can bring our, our partners and our councils together to to discuss those difficult issues and think of solutions to um, face them. Yeah, mm. tr a tricky meeting should feel a bit like therapy, I think, in that regard. Just yeah. uh, get everyone in the room and sort of, I, I always feel that's the good sign. If you've got everyone in the room and everyone starts saying like, okay, what's going on? And people start like loosening the collars a little bit and start saying what's actually going on. You're like, yes, I'm onto a good meeting here. This good, is, yes. Let it all absolutely. out. Let it's it go, good. guys. It's all, it's all private here, chat and no one's going to get any names, just say it. And yeah. I, think, I think they're the meetings where you get the most good, I think, because that, that's where people start sharing the actually what's happening. Let me come on to sustainability. There's been in the past kind of an issue about who here has declared a climate emergency. Mm. 
And as important as that is, is that just a bit of window dressing? And it's really the, the you know, where the rubber hits the road, um, not to bring in a non-net zero metaphor, but, um, you know, in terms, of, wheels. Yeah, in terms of uh, ensuring that our renewables industry does what it needs to do with the very least amount of disruption mm. uh, quickly, cleanly, mm. get it done, get it finished, get out of there. I mean, Matt, do you want to take this or...? Uh, well, I mean, it, it, I mean, uh, what, what, I, I haven't actually. I don't know if I've actually asked a question. I was about to say, yeah, I was about to... <laughs> it was really. You, you talk about sustainability, but that is so important. Yeah. Uh, do we risk getting hung up on what councils do and don't declare in terms of policy, rather, and and, and is it really concrete action? Uh, talk me through what the report's well, calling for. Well, absolutely. I mean, I mean, concrete action is always important. I think when, when it comes to the climate emergency... Not talking uh, about the embedded carbon aspect of concrete, <laughs> by the way. Well, yeah, that's, I mean, that's a whole different kettle of fish. That's, um, ooh. Uh, but the, the absolute... I mean, I mean, the good thing about a, cli a climate emergency, thing, I, I, I suppose, is that it does... Um, well, one, it creates, I guess, some political accountability, and two, it's, it's, you know, it's a signal, signal of intent. But intention without actions, you know, as you say, it's a little mm. bit, little bit meaningless. So I, that's, I think that's, I think, and we have, we've, I believe, I've spoken to local authorities in Alpatri who don't necessarily have a climate emergencies, but they say, but it, you know, this is nevertheless something that we discuss at every meeting, yeah. you know, that, that we host. So don't, you know, no, no one should dare challenge our commitment to this, which I think is fine because I think, you know, so long as it's being discussed and it's being acted upon and considered, uh, I believe uh, we. we a policy that we were talking about uh, last year, I believe, is something about uh, like climate first policy making. Mm -hmm. And the same with a lot of people talking about health first policy. You know, you, whenever you're designing a policy, you're thinking, well, okay, how is this going to affect the health of the people involved uh, and the people that this is uh, going to be put upon? You should also consider the climate and be like, okay, well, let's let's you know take this policy. How is this going to impact the environment? Uh, you know, and, and, and even the policies that seem like as unrelated to climate change as possible, do, do it anyway, just humour it as a little thought experiment. And I think that's, that's an interesting way of approaching these sorts of climate related matters. I think, you know, and that leads to not just like, you know, the, the obvious things like let's build a cycle path, absolutely incredibly important, but it helps you tease out the things that you weren't thinking about, which I think is really, really important. And that, that like um, little things like, uh, you know, the climate footprint, well, not little things, but Things that you don't immediately think about, like the climate footprint of leisure centres, say, or, or things like that. You know, yeah, that's a that's a that's a that's a that's a key one actually. Never, yeah, yeah, and it's and it's it's it, and I think things like that. It's 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 almost like what you don't know is is the dangerous bit when it comes to like climate change. Uh, you know, the obvious things like big power plants and stuff. Yeah, we're, we're kind of on that we're, to to an extent. Um, and our trajectory is looking good. It's the things that we don't initially think of that are sort of, I think, where where the potential. Uh, you know, you can't act on something you haven't even thought about. I think is what I'm trying to well, say. The the, the, <laughs> the unknown unknown. Absolutely, Rumsfeld had it. But um, mm. to what extent does the dread issue of the five year land supply uh, rear its head in terms of we want this, we don't want this because we don't think it's particularly sustainable, but we've got that weakness that vulnerability because of i mean these things are it's easy to it's easy to say oh you should just get your five-year lens it's not that easy actually no. um to what extent is that a, a vulnerability towards sustainable development i think there'll always be a tension for for councils to desperately want the the development that, that's needed in their communities but the issues we're facing around the climate around climate change are so vast and are so concrete and I think we're you know we're seeing it year on year with extreme weather events that are becoming less and less extreme because they're happening you know near on every month so the need to develop in a sustainable way 
is crucial and I, I, I think it I don't think there'll be a situation where our councils will allow developments that, that are unsustainable to go forward even if that does mean that the you know the, the, the housing and the development that's desperately needed that community would be taking place what is the the one take that you as, as individuals or as the organization want the one main takeaway from this report and then I would like to sort of very briefly get into what's next, what research you're coming out with next, next reports, or, or what's the next steps from this report that you want to see? Well, I mean, if, if there's one thing I think that would be really useful to draw this out, it is that, uh, it's that tenure point. I think that's really, really important to raise that idea that, you know, we need to boost the number of houses that are built but in a way that is, uh, you know, that, that caters to the whole population and enables people to, you know, become homeowners, homeowners if they want, renters if they want, you know, provide that variety of choice that enables people to really get to where they want to go in life. And I think local authorities have a really big part to play in that, and, and, um, and so do housing associations. And I think that's something that as local authorities, that's a lever we can pull, I think. I think we're, and I think the region's really proud to pull it. Uh, with regards to what is going to happen going forward, I mean, I've, we're having discussions with the uh, all-party parliamentary group on uh, the next meetings on housing. So we're really excited to talk to them about housing and how we can um, talk to colleagues in Westminster about how this can be shaped, uh, what, what's, what's the art of the possible, what's available. That is, that uh, is the <coughs> particularly at this point in the, in the cycle. Absolutely, um, yeah. Where they say, what, what's, what's going to cause the least amount of uh, turbulence? Yeah, absolutely. So there's, we're, we're looking at that. We're also, as you said, there's that great convening uh, role that we have. And I think there's, there, there's been an appetite across the region. When I was doing some of the research for this, re uh, for this report, there was a lot of appetite for local authorities who really wanted to share their expertise. They really wanted to share the good things that they'd done and likewise hear from other local authorities that had done the same. So we're looking into how much we can do of that. As I said, we're, we're a small and agile team here, but we really try and like provide as much value as we can. So we really want to make sure that we target that as best we can so that we can help as many local authorities as possible, really, to be, to be frank, and make sure that that's as much, you know, showcase as much good stuff from the east of England as possible, because there's some really good stuff around here. Mm. I mean, Goldsmith Street, I mean, I, I love it. It's, it's, it's a great, it's great. I want to go visit there myself. If you end up going there, let me, let me know. I will, I will. Oh, I'll, brilliant, yeah, yeah tag me along. I, I want to visit. I, I, knew, <laughs> I, shall, I shall clue you in when I, uh, when I, I think it's a bit tricky at the moment because we're in Perda. Absolutely, locals. of course. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think that's that, that shouldn't affect it too much. But we'll, uh, when, when I get something set up, I shall let you know. Adam, what's what's your key takeaway here? I think I, I, I would have to say my number one would be around the, the scale of affordable and social housing and the huge increase we need of, mm. of those tenures in, in our region. But Matt's already said that, so I'll go for my number two. Go on then. Which is the resources and capacity of our planning departments. I think tied, yeah. we really, really need to have a, a proper look at how we support our councils to recruit and retain the, the planning officers that they desperately need, because they're well placed to support the house building that the region needs, but are unfortunately being held back by their budgets and their capacity and resources to, mm -hmm. to achieve the necessary work. In terms of next steps, as Matt said, we've got a meeting of our all-party parliamentary group for the region coming up with a focus on housing. Unfortunately, I don't think the housing minister will be present. But there will be a letter sent to the minister following the meeting and we'll be pushing hard for a formal response mm. to our ILGA report on housing, the scale of the crisis in the region and what needs to happen in the future on housing. And we'll be pushing for a, a follow-up meeting with the minister 
as they're not able to be present at the meeting of the APPG? Well, it, it, it's, it's a hope that the, the minister, when the meeting goes ahead, is the same minister who gets to open, open the letter. Uh, I think we're in the, 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 the teens in terms of uh, the revolving door, which, which, is, which is a worry, yeah. but we, not one we can, we can fix, because uh, I think this, this, this discussion, I hope, has been a bit like an LED bulb, a lot of, a lot of light and no heat. We've uh, put a few ideas out there, you know, um, please, uh, please do, do take them if they, you find them of useful. But what has been uh, really important and I've really enjoyed is that learning about that convening role that Ilga plays, learning about how you can offer a safe space to talk about what are really, really difficult topics. And as well, uh, underlining how difficult those topics are, uh, but that you guys have really put out some really first class research um, and, you know, uh, taking those issues forward in concert with the APPG. Uh, it's really important to have those discussions. You've really armed them with a really weighty uh, report. And I look forward to seeing what what's coming in terms of other topic areas from the East of, uh, the East of England Local Government Association. Matthew Stewart, Adam Thorpe, thank you so much for being on Eastern Promise. Well, thank you very much for thank having you. us. Cheers for having us, Mike. Great to chat. My thanks to Adam and Matthew for inviting me to come and discuss the report, which you can find at eelga.gov.uk forward slash housing dash report. That's double E-L-G-A dot gov dot UK forward slash housing dash report. Eastern Promise is a Priors Croft production for the Eastern Promise East Anglia Community Interest Company.